There have recently been several mass shootings in America, a part of a continuing pattern. The nation mourns the victims of two shooting massacres just 13 hours apart. The massacres in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, happened in startling proximity for a country already too familiar with gun violence. We wanted to take a look at media coverage and sort of review the role the media plays in the progression of this pattern. Hello, this is Debatable with your hosts Lina and Kyle, and today we're going to talk about media and mass murder. So before we begin, there are a few disclaimers that you wanted to make. The most important one is that this episode will not be about gun laws. Obviously, common sense gun laws are important and they should definitely be put in place. Our focus in this episode will be the mass media, which is something that's commonly overlooked, especially by media sources. And our theory is actually that media sources are hesitant to admit the part that they themselves play in the proliferation of the same acts they consider to be horrific acts of violence, even though their role in all of this has been studied time and time again by lots of researchers. Yeah, and even if we discuss it on social media, it doesn't really reach as many people as possible. So we wanted to have our take on it. We've been researching on several factors that contribute to why mass shootings are still prevalent, especially in the United States. In the past decade, they've become more frequent and a lot more deadly. Sandy Hook, Orlando, the Vegas Strip, Parkland, and now El Paso and Dayton on the same day. First thing that we wanted wanted to take a look at is why is there even so much coverage in mass shootings in general in the first place? There was a recent study that said around $75 million in media coverage value are attributed to mass shooters. And for extended periods of time, Following their attacks, they received more coverage than professional athletes and only slightly less than TV or film stars. During their attack months, actually, some mass killers received even more media attention than, for example, Kim Kardashian, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Jennifer Aniston, the like. And we think that it's usually because it's easier to find an emotional hook or more bang for your buck, as they call it. Because most media sources are profit-oriented, and their time restraints make them disproportionately likely to focus on mass shootings. Yeah, so the, the point here is that you have limitations on time, and it makes it more likely for them to overrepresent mass murder, even though in reality it's less frequent. So when Neil deGrasse Tyson sent a tweet about how there are actually more deaths because of fever um, because of fever and these types of things yeah. like that is objectively true that being said it seems like we are more likely to focus on mass shootings because of how sensationalized the media makes it even though like we agree that the tweet was probably tone deaf and and such and such we also need to take into consideration that maybe the way that the media portrays all of these events is actually something that contributes to the pattern that we're seeing right now. Yeah. So how is it usually reported anyway? So there was a 2017 study by Murray. In his paper, he identifies seven steps in media coverage, a lot of which are problematic in some ways that aren't necessarily related to copycat killers, even though we're going to discuss that yeah. eventually later on. So the first step is what Murray calls tragic shock, where the the event is portrayed as like a discrete event. It's a tragedy. They use words like bizarre, unexpected, crazy, 
random evil. They report on the number of deaths and the number of injured people, even though th- those numbers constantly change. Shooting at Century Theaters, 14. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. So in the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012, um, there were early victim reports that said there were 14 dead and 50 wounded. And then it changed to at least 10 killed. And then it was also changed to at least 12 killed and 59 wounded until the final count was 12 killed and 58 wounded. Right off the bat, you can see how the initial reaction to mass media like creates a lot of misinformation, especially with regard to numbers. Mm. Um, but the misrepresentation doesn't stop there. The second stage, according to Marie, is first witness reports, where you get a bunch of interviews which are authentic but also chaotic in nature, and there are many contradictions in the first witness accounts. So in the Columbine massacre, there was this person named Bree Pasquale who gave two accounts regarding the motive of the killers. One of the accounts said it was racially motivated, so they were singling out blacks, and the other account said that it was just random indiscriminate shooting. So even though these two accounts came from the same person, they were contradictory. And even though they were contradictory, because it seemed so authentic and so emotional, people just ate it all up. Yeah, and I think it took advantage of the fact that people who were involved in the mass shootings are usually still rather disoriented or in initial shock. So having the media start pounding on them also contributes to the amount of misinformation that they, they say. Usually, they might not have seen things clearly. And that's why even in professional investigations, you have to ensure that you don't bombard them initially. You make sure they have a clean head. They are taken away from the dangerous environment. But media doesn't really care for that. I also think it's a bit off-putting that like a terrible tragedy just occurred to them. And then the media is already hounding them like, what happened? What happened? What happened? Yeah. Like forcing them to relive what just happened to them, even though they're not like they still haven't been able to fully digest or internalize everything that's happened to them. Yeah. But I think what's also worth noting here is that the kinds of descriptions that are given at this stage are usually emotionally charged. So if you look at the Pulse nightclub shooting, there were, there were a lot of reports of, like detailing the last messages that the victims sent to their loved ones. Things like, Mommy, I love you, or call the police, Mommy, now I'm telling you, I'm in the bathroom, he's coming, I'm gonna die. And even from the shootings this last weekend, I just read a, an article from CNN that featured actually videos that first witness reports like actually took. So CNN was blatantly showing the videos of the shooting actually happening. Yeah, they took like yeah. Insta stories, people's videos, their Facebook lives, etc. So that's usually the first two steps. And notice how there's not a lot of information there. And the purpose for that is a lot of media just want to be the first ones to cover it. Or there's a lot of prize in being able to capitalize on the moment. Yeah, and, and also, I think it's at that initial shock that you get the emotional hook that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Like, that's where it all begins. Because you can't just identify this one person first and not have any emotional connection to the event first. Which is why, strategically speaking, it's the best way to maximize your grip on the viewers. It's not a good thing, but... It's effective, basically. Which leads us to the third stage, which is actually the identification of the shooter. Mm. So we don't know a lot about the shooter at this stage, other than, for example, the name, the address, etc. And then you're going to have um, talking head segments on news channels. 
identifying the common profile of the killers. So usually it's like a white killer, 25 to 30 years old, angry, disgruntled, low education, loner, lone wolf types of things. And they also use buzzwords like um, psychopath, sociopath. And these buzzwords rely on science, yeah. like forensic psychology, in order to give more credibility, even though it might not necessarily be accurate to, to portray them like in these ways. Yeah, and it's not always these words that they use. It depends. If you're not white, they usually say terrorist attack, etc. So that's a different debate issue altogether. But yeah, the we point should is, talk about that later. Yeah, Yeah, we probably should. But the point here is that they usually try to give you a general description of who this person is. So you have a faint idea of what to look for. And usually, as viewers who are used to, sadly used to seeing mass shootings, we usually know how this goes already. If we know they're white, young adult, we kind of already can tell what direction the media will go. Yeah, the, the problem here is that most of the time, actually, according to the, the study, the, the study yeah. is that most of the time it's wrong, especially in the first hours. And so in 2012, you had the Sandy Hook massacre where Adam Lanza shot his mom four times in the head and then afterwards went to the Sandy Hook Elementary School and killed around 21st graders. But just an hour after the shooting happened, the media said that it wasn't Adam Lanza. It was actually a father of a student who had a confrontation with the principal and then started to like kill these people. So as a result, people didn't think it was Adam Lanza, but rather his brother, Ryan. Because of these weird reports, inaccurate reports, they ended up pinpointing Ryan as opposed to Adam, who actually committed the crime. Um, so, But before making this clarification, Fox News, CBS, even BuzzFeed already featured information about Ryan Lanza in their um, news sites. And Adam's mom was also identified as a teacher in Sandy Hook, even though she never even taught there. So... Like, the, the speed at which they want to get this information, give it to the public, means that they're less likely to fact-check, right? And it's more likely that you damage people's reputations yeah. because of those inaccuracies. Mm. So, the next stage, stage four, is what uh, Murray says is focusing on the character of the shooter. Usually, according to the paper, you get interviews from people who knew the killer. The time span ranges, but it might go all the way back to elementary school. Many of the interviewees say that they weren't even surprised. Um, the U.S. Secret Service in 2004 said over 75% of school shooter cases have one or more individuals who had knowledge of the potentially serious nature of the personal problems and the possibility of the killing. So you focus on the red flags that were there from the very beginning. Mm. And in 2018, you also had a study that examined 433 news documentaries covering several hundred mass shootings between 2013 and 2015. And what we found there was that whites and Latinos are more likely to have their crime attributed to mental illnesses than blacks. This was a sick person. The person in Dayton was a sick person. No politician is to blame for that. You cannot be a white supremacist and be normal in the head. These are sick people. Mental health is a large contributor to any type of violence or shooting violence. There's so many different factors yeah. you don't know. I mean, maybe a child's born with, you know, something mental illness. So if you're white, you're more likely to be described as somebody who's suffering from mental illness. But if you're black, you're more likely to just be described as a criminal or a terrorist, these types of things. And even the mugshots they use are indicative of that. Like, white shooters usually have their graduation photos in place, but those who are black or of color 
usually have their mugshots or the worst possible pictures of them. And it usually helps the narrative they're trying to push. So usually, and for multiple reasons, they try to portray whites as the victims of this. Like they were out of control, it wasn't in their full capacity that they did this. But if you're a person of color, then like all crimes are attributed to you and you alone. Yeah, basically what they're trying to do at this stage is to create a sense of moral panic. Um, and in this stage of moral panic, the media at this point tries to personify social problems as like sort of folk devils. An example of this of criminalization narratives that generalize blacks and Latinos like gang violence. This is where moral panics come in. White offenders are now considered to be men- mentally ill lone wolves as compared to black offenders. And like th- this is obviously just diverting the blame from the shooter himself to the mental illness. And this is also considered to be like blame assignment. So another paper I read while researching for this episode said that dominant social groups often delegate blame within the moral panic to secure their interests. So because whites are dominant as a social group, it is in their interest to divert the blame away from their ability to get guns and their ability to kill people with less likelihood of them being caught or having consequences. Yeah. Like, these types of things. Or if it's really hard for you to attribute it to something else, they usually try to isolate the issue by claiming that these are lone wolves. Yeah. And there are multiple debates that have already existed, even in our debate community where we discuss the term. Um, I remember I debated about whether the term lone wolf should ever be dis- used to describe a terrorist or an actor in a mass shooting or in a grave attack. So usually the lone wolf narrative makes you feel like it's not a systemic problem. It's not likely to make you think of gun violence or gun access or perhaps the white supremacist teachings or incel teachings that led to these attacks in the first place. Yeah, so more often than not, there will be some form of blame assignment when it comes to people who come from dominant social groups like whites or rich people, right? So it's not just like diverting the attention to mental health issues. Sometimes it's other things like Donald Trump has recently tried to blame violent video games, for Uh. example. (laughs) We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. Yeah, so why, why is it important that we even talk about mental health versus a criminality narrative? So diversion to mental health portrays the shooter to be a victim of circumstance than being an actual offender. So not only does it make it impossible for us to talk about mental illnesses in a proper light, it demonizes it, it makes it impossible for others with actual mental illnesses to be seen as victims, um, but it also makes it harder for us to have good gun laws because we are looking at the wrong direction, we are putting our attention into the wrong things. I'll be a god, exacting my retribution and all those who deserve it. Girls gave their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. So a really good example would be Roger Elliot, who created an incel manifesto talking about his mental health, declaring himself to be a true victim in all of this because he was not given enough attention by women, that the society has failed him. Um, So he became an icon for other incels. But in reality, it's his own issues that caused this. And it's also the fact that he had easy access to guns because of his privilege and because it was very easy for anyone practically to get guns where he was from. 
Yeah, but also there's a significant amount of misinformation that comes at this stage also. So in the Columbine massacre, what happened was that the killers like had trench coats on. So media reporters assumed that they were part of this group called the Trench Coat Mafia. But that's not true. In fact, the Trench Coat Mafia isn't really like a mafia at all. It's not violent. It's actually just this small group of children who are at risk of being bullied psychologically or physically. And the Trench Coat Mafia is a subculture that banded these students together to fight bullying. So the killers weren't even in the trench coat mafia, but the reputation of the trench coat mafia suffered as a result, even though, like, objectively, they're just, like, a bunch of people who are wearing goth outfits trying to, like, have their own corner of the school where they won't get bullied. And you usually think that if there are misinformation, it's easy to correct, but sometimes the impression lasts. So even if we have so many other news articles that, debunk the narrative that mental health is horrible, the fact that it's viscerally presented to you during a very sensitive time, during a mass shooting, you're more likely to believe that than any statistics, than any research, than whatever experts say. Right? So it's really a lot of fault on the part of media. The fifth stage after that would be media branding. And this is where you can see how they package the massacre. If you've seen documentaries, if you've seen those new shows on Netflix that try to account like for Ted Bundy, etc. This is part of that. So it's usually because of a ratings war, as we mentioned earlier. So the more emotionally charged it is, the more likely people are to tune in to your segment or to tune into your show. And this started with the Columbine massacre that took place. And ever since, um, news outlets have been finding creative ways to present horrors of the tragedy and make it look like something people should actively tune into. After the Sandy Hook massacre, the same night that the massacre happened, you had elaborate visuals on the school, you had opening and fadeaway theme songs, they had a specially made logo for the massacre, and then they branded it as a tragedy. Like, multiple news sources had the same branding that was a tragedy, the tragedy of Sandy Hook. And if you look at the Pulse shooting, on the first day, you had real-time coverage of the victims in shock. You saw bodies being rushed to the hospital, you saw SWAT teams, you saw videos taken, and the text sent by the people who were killed. There was a 3D animation of everything that happened the next day. There was a Texas massacre that just happened like a, f- a few hours ago, actually, at the time of this recording. Mm-hmm. And even right now, just a few hours later, what I told you about the CNN site showing these videos of the, the event actually occurring... It's right there on their site, like, just a few hours afterwards. It's kind of weird to imagine that media outlets have these things prepared. Like, I'm pretty sure that they have the technology prepared exactly for mass shootings. And you can already tell how how common it is, how easy it is to cover mass shootings because they're so used to it. They're so used to sensationalizing it that they actually have the proper equipment, the correct sound effects, to create logos on the spot, to know what to present. So, so imagine... You you are someone who works at a, a news source or a news site or something, and then someone calls you. It's like, hey, there there was another mass shooting. You should make a logo right now about the mass shooting. It's like, okay, they, <laughs> like, or they, they probably bro. have like a package already available, like a whole document of all the necessary files for presenting mass shootings. And for me, that's plausible, which makes it horrible. Yeah, it, it's so horrible because you now get to realize that. 
it, it's part of their job to profit off of these tragedies that occur. Anyway, the, the next stage is the official response and report, which could take months or even years. And this is probably the most boring stage because this is where you have trial phases, you have task force reports from the police. But those task force reports commonly discuss um, number one, the vulnerability of the security of the area, mental health systems, the ease of obtaining weapons, warning signs. But the problem here is because it takes too long to get these assessments, right? The, the clamor has already died down because there was another shooting that already occurred between those few months. Or even if there's no shooting, it's just people lose interest because there's no more emotional hope. No one wants to hear about the reports. No one wants to hear about the statistics. No one wants to hear about what we can do better. Yeah, even though the police themselves, with their task forces, repeatedly say that you should focus on our mental health systems, you should focus on the ease with which we obtain weapons, etc. So these things are part of the societal problem like gun control laws etc but because they're reported on at such a late stage it's so difficult for us to use those reports in the media to galvanize support for these policies and actually the the last stage is something that's really fast now the seventh stage is to return to stage one because we expect that there will be more yeah Um, even the texas shooting that just happened a few hours as of this recording, is very recent compared to the one that happened a day or two ago, right? Yeah, so the, this weekend alone, there were two mass yeah. shootings in America. Yeah. The, the next segment, let's talk about how it inspires copycat. So we just talked about how like all the different stages of um, how the media reports it, a lot of them are by themselves already problematic. But what we want to discuss right now is how does it inspire copycats? So... There was this 2015 study that said these shootings are commonly inspired by similar events in their immediate past. And the highest risk of having a copycat shooting is within the first 13 days after the shooting has occurred. So let's go back to Columbine for a bit. So after Columbine happened, there were at least 3,000 similar threats. And this is what we call the contagion effect. Another example is um, the Virginia Tech massacre. The killer was Song Shui Cho, um, who at the age of 15 wrote in his English class about his admiration for the Columbine shooters for their ability to, quote-unquote, stand up against people who were mistreating them and that he wanted to repeat Columbine. And seven years later, after idolizing the Columbine killers for so long, he killed 32 people with semi-automatic pistols at the Virginia Tech shooting. And you, you'd say that there were a lot of steps that went wrong here. For one, I feel like he was inspired by media. Um, second, I think that Given the red flag was shown at the early age of 15, there should have been interventions as early as then. But even if they were, obviously they were not good enough or they failed in actually curbing the harm from taking place. And because of the ignorance of people and because of the lack of the education system or proper mental health institutions to help him out, then the incident happened again. Yeah, and if, if you look at Sandy Hook again, um, Adam Lanza, had this really horrifying spreadsheet where he like has a list of over 500 mass killers and he also listed in the spreadsheet the particulars of each case how they did it the names the psychological profiles everything um and this is where we want to transition to a discussion about generalized imitation so. so we discussed contagion effect and contagion effect just simply means that people influence each other and we want to copycat them basically but generalized imitation is talking about be- um, behavior that is imitated 
exactly because of media reporting. And since this is what the episode's about, we want to um, detail more on that. So it's not a simple contagion effect of anything. It's a generalized imitation, especially because of how the media makes it look so easy and the media makes it so easy for them to gather information like a 500 yeah, page because there, there are so many um there's so many details are included like how it was uh, how it happened who the person even is so like th- there's some sort of like relatability thing that that's created by how it's reported yeah so the the first thing that happens in a generalized imitation of war or one of the reasons why it's so prevalent in media is because as mentioned earlier in step three you note similarities between the shooter and potential future shooters because you detail their life, their story, their relatability. So they have a detailed description of how it's done. So it it creates a sort of relationship between the future shooter and the current shooter. If they see themselves as a loner as well, if they can relate to the motives of the person, if they have the same hatred or same background, then usually that's what happens. So for example, incels and white supremacists are more likely to imitate um, because of the similarities of beliefs, similarities of culture. So Elliot Roger, as I mentioned earlier, in his 2014 Isla Vista shooting, because he created a manifesto that was so detailed, he managed to inspire so many others to want to be like him. He even released a video like hours before or minutes before he started shooting up the place, um, detailing why he did what he was about to do. Yeah, so what's the point? The the point of all of like the point of this entire discussion is basically to say that it is high time that we have to change these tactics because the the way that we're reporting it right now doesn't prevent future killings from happening. It doesn't even do that good a job of creating like more productive discussions about gun control. Because like it it seems like at this point it's sort of a deadlock at legislature. I think that we should now try to change the tactics that we use to report on these mass shootings, to focus less on sensationalism, to focus less on who the killer is, what the perspective of the killer is, because it just creates this risk of making other people more likely to copy it. Um, so we can compare it to um, the same changes in tactics that were used to report on suicides. So when we talked about suicide prevention, there were new steps that were put into place. Like you, you can't sensationalize things. You can't blame it on any single factor. You can't report on it too frequently. You can't describe the event step by step. You can't have too many prominent headlines. You can't show too many photos or videos or audio recordings. And you have to take, especially like with celebrities, you need to take care. Yeah, so this whole issue that we just talked about for a few minutes isn't new. So it's not just with mass shootings that the media tends to sensationalize things. It's also with suicide. And if we were able to curb the harms of that by implementing steps, then I don't think it should be that big of a problem to try applying it to discussions of mass shootings in the future as well. So there are also advanced ways for us to do this. Like even the FBI in collaboration with the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Team. Basically that team in the United States, they launched this Don't Name Them campaign. And James Comey, the director of the FBI, tried to do this in 2016 by ensuring that media corporations did not actively name the shooter, especially at such an early stage of the event taking place. We're going out trying to get the media not to name the shooters, don't show their pictures, don't glamorize them show them for the criminals that they are 
and maybe that could stop a future shooter from going ahead and, and conducting mass violence. Okay, so how do we end this episode? Um, so we're still debatable, which means that we we usually have to tell them why. <laughs> what, what? Why do you need to know all of this, especially if you're a debater? So I guess we should have actually said this at the start. We think it's important to know this, not just as a debater, but as a knowledgeable citizen of the world. So even if we're from the Philippines, or even if you're not directly affected by mass shootings, you are also affected by the way that these discussions happen, especially if you are a person with mental illness who may be affected or an individual has a family member who is affected. But even if we're not um, citizens of a country with a lot of mass murder, we can learn a lot of things by how media presents things. So it's also a call out basically to how we consume media. So we're telling you this so that you can also be aware of how you consume media and to active precautions in what you absorb and what you take as factually true or factually false. So another reason is because it actually helps a lot in debates. So as we mentioned, there are a lot of motions that have these themes apply. So a few of them would be like this house regrets the media's focus on the coverage of mass murders. This house regrets society's focus on the perspectives of mass murders. This house regrets the label of mass shooters as lone wolves, etc. Yeah. Right. So, obviously, as much as information is important, which is something opposition would likely say, detail how that information is given and whether that should be something that's something that we absorb so easily. Um, so this is a rather serious episode. So excuse the fact that we're taking this a bit more seriously than our other episodes. Um, but we hope you learned something. Um, this is one of those episodes where we just kind of uh, matter load you <laughs> for future events. And hopefully you learned something. So for these, like, most recent mass killings, like, I recommend that using the knowledge that, like, we just talked about here in this episode, like, take a look at how the media is reporting on these events and sort of, like, look at whether or not they fulfill the seven steps, the seven stages. Sort of be wary about all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll end on that. Yeah, let's end on that. Okay, thanks for listening to our episode of Debatable. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.